Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll get to know iconic filmmaker David Cronenberg, the director of Eastern Promises, A History of Violence, The Fly, and Videodrome, among many, many others, returns to theaters after an eight-year break with Crimes of the Future, an all-star story of eroticized human evolution, starring Kristen Stewart, Viggo Mortensen, and Leah Seydoux. You don't want to miss that interview. There's lots to come with David Cronenberg later in the show. We'll also meet award-winning comedian Leslie Seiler. Leslie is from Halifax and now lives in Los Angeles. The focus of her new comedy album, Check for Snakes, is moving to L.A. in 2016 and experiencing the Trump and COVID era from the perspective of someone from Canada. We talk about her comedy and her side gig. Get this, decorating Christmas trees for Jennifer Lopez. First, though, let's spend some time with actor Alana Holly Purvis. In Range Roads, now available on Super Channel and to rent or buy on VOD, she plays an actress who tries to reconnect with her estranged brother after their parents die in a car accident. But there's a mystery as well. Frankie, that's her character, finds a life insurance policy that names a woman whose name she doesn't recognize. What's the connection to the family? Well, I won't tell you. You'll have to watch the movie. But Elena is great in the film, and she joined me via Zoom for from Vancouver to talk about the movie and making the leap from the stage to the screen. This is my sister, Frankie. Let me see you on TV all the time. That show. <laughs> Are you the one that's in the chocolate bar commercial? Yeah. It's her. For heaven's sake, we knew we had seen us. Frankie King with Blaze Talent. So how'd you find me? It's over. <laughs> Frankie, it's Grayson. It's about mom and dad. <gasps> Dad just had a heart attack behind the wheel, just like that. And the car rolls like seven times, so he just takes mom with him. I'm so sorry, that's terrible news. Take the rest of the week. I'll try and make this as painless as possible. Grayson, you've been appointed executor of the estate. What about Frankie? I'm sorry, Frankie. It's one of those films that has been in pre-production for a long time. I had heard that this went into pre-production in 2013. Uh, and it, Yeah, and it took a long time, as a lot of independent films do and a lot of movies do. At what point did you become involved in it? Honestly, 2013. So yeah. I think, or maybe even 2014. Kyle, um, Kyle Thomas, the director, the writer, he had the idea, but he had been talking to Joe Perry and I, Joe Perry plays Grayson in the film ever since we did the Valley below together. So that was another one his first feature film that he had ever done. And uh, he was just, he's incredibly inclusive, Richard. So he's one of those directors that allows actors to be a part of the experience. You know right. what I mean? So yeah, he brought us on. I think he came to see me uh, doing the humans, like a theater show um, and said, I want to do this. What do you think about um, jumping on that journey with me? And so that was a long time ago back then yeah. years ago. And so what happens? Does a, a script arrive every now and again, or there are phone calls? How does that work? A lot of phone calls. And honestly, it started, um, Kyle wanted to approach this from the sense where the actors uh, created or co-created the characters with him. Mm -hmm. So he knew he wanted to work with Joe and I. We didn't know the story that he wanted to tell. And we just started jamming, like literally with old school, you know, Google Docs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and even when with independent films, as you know, you have to get you have to fight for that funding, right? Okay. So we were even doing shorts to kind of, 
get the original funding to then even start the feature. And a lot of the scenes in the short, we would improvise. So we would talk about for years, right? But then when we got to it, Joe and I were the ones that were putting words to it ourselves. So and, it's cool. And tell me a little bit about that, because uh, I, I know your work primarily as a theater actor, yeah. uh, which I would assume means that, you know, when you're working at the Stratford Festival, you're working from texts and characters that have been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, this is a much different thing. So how do you approach the material? Uh, what, what are the differences uh, between oh. the two methods? Richard, I'm such a baby. I'm honestly learning so much. The Valley Below was the first feature film I'd ever did, and then Range Road is the second. Right. So honestly, it was just a huge learning curve. Acting is what I've done my whole life. But like you said, the craft is different. I always say that the art of theater and the art of film and TV, the art of acting is the same, but the craft is completely different. Right. So I'm still totally a baby. I think as with all uh, new skills, you just want to watch people that are phenomenal at it. So mm -hmm. the nice thing is, at least in my career until now, and even working on things like Range Roads, I was able to watch really, really phenomenal people do the work. Like Nicole Bohr, who's a seasoned professional, right? Um, so it was tough. You just learn. You just kind of go along with it and just put your best, best foot forward. But the craft, the technique is totally different. Even something like not over-articulating and being quiet for a classically trained actor like me is hella hard, right? Well, it feels counterintuitive, I'm sure. Oh my God, it feels like yeah. you're doing nothing, nothing at all, right? And and Frankie, so much of the character in Rage Roads is inside. She's so expressionless herself. Mm -hmm. And as you can tell from me, that's not, that's not <laughs> who, who I am at all. So it was really, um, it was a beautiful challenge. Let's put it that way. But still, Richard, yeah, I'm a baby in it. I'm trying to learn still as we go along in life. You just think you're so much better than everyone, Frankie. Hopefully you don't turn to dust when you walk through the church doors. I just might. Frankie King. Did not expect to see you here. I didn't know my parents. So you're going to tell me the real reason he came back? To see you. It seems odd, you know, I haven't seen you in years. We don't have a relationship. I always think of a story that I heard George Clooney tell one time about uh, before he was famous, before he was getting acting jobs, he used to do cater waitering, you know, at, at parties and things. And so he's doing that as a lot of us have done. So he he uh, was doing it at a party and Billy Wilder came up to him and said, you could be a movie star, you but you move your head too much. Even when you talk, you move your head too much. Stop doing that and you will become successful. Isn't it the truth? Honestly, yeah. honestly, Richard, I finally, I have, I have three-year-old twins at home. So um, it's one of those things where you like finally start to get back to your own sense of self, right? right? And so right. I've set myself back up in my own acting classes because I teach acting too, but yeah. I was like, I want to be a student again. So I'm seeing this awesome teacher uh, named Nadine Wright out of Vancouver, but she said the same thing to me. The first thing she's like, lower your jaw, stop wiggling the head. Why the are you wiggling your head? Yep. She's like, jaw down, lose the eyebrow tension. And that was it. And those were kind of the notes. And she said the same thing. She's like, this is what you need to work on. And I just loved it because it comes down to that craft. And as you know, the camera, like too much movement here breaks the moment. So, man, I am on that journey. So, yay, I'm going to put myself in the same category as George Clooney. Thank you, you and George Clooney. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Alana Holly Purvis on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, Range Roads, is available on Super Channel and to rent or buy on VOD. So, totally. this is a, a story about uh, a, a woman who goes back to, we don't want to give too much away, I don't think, but goes back to a smaller town that she was from than she's living 
acting in currently. She's an actor uh, on a television show, on a kid show. Something happens. She goes back to this smaller place. And as I was wondering or watching it, I was wondering, uh, you know, you've lived in Truro, Nova Scotia. You lived in Alberta, in a small town in Alberta for a while. You lived in uh, Prince George, British Columbia. So you understand a smaller place you've lived in a bunch of these places this is a story very much about going back to one of those places that you think you've left behind did the experience of living in Truro or in Prince George uh inform this character at all 100 percent, I think it did somebody the other day in an interview asked me if I'm like Frankie and I said no no you know I'm tight with my family and then I kind of paused and 20 minutes later came back and said yeah everything everything that Frankie is is everything I try to hide so (laughs) yes like I don't know how but everything that um, is a part of me, including that small town and mentality, you know, those, th- those things that you kind of pretend that they're not there. And as you get older, you learn to embrace them, right, Richard? Like we learn to embrace the fullness of who we are, but it, it completely is part of Frankie and part of me. And I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. I think there's such beauty and community and in Range Roads, again, not to give away stuff, but you see how you can feel so lost and alone in a big center and yet so connected to your community in a small center. Mm-hmm. And everybody's journey is different, but that's one thing that I will always hold with me is that in a small community, people band together and open their doors to, to each other in a way that you don't get in larger centers. Like, I don't know about you in Liverpool, but Truro, we don't lock our doors. You don't lock our door. Yeah. Yeah. And if a stranger comes in, you offer them, you know, a lobster, not to be too cliche, <laughs> but it's kind of true, <laughs> right? Or some clam chowder, like it's, it's a real thing. And there's such beauty in that. And I've lived in Toronto and Vancouver. And those are things when I go to those centers, I go, oh man, if I say hello to this person on the street, they're wondering what I want from them rather right. than talking about the weather so yeah it's there and i'm proud of it i will hold on to that in my life all the time this film tackles uh lots of uh deep and kind of heavy subjects there's grief uh purpose what is your purpose in life uh identity Uh, was there one in particular that kind of uh nailed it for you one that you considered to be paramount above the rest for me yes um and that would be the journey of self-love Mm. Um, and not to sound too cliche about it, but I think that's something that I'm very curious about as a person that I'm still on. I think my soul, my spirit will always be on that journey of trying to accept myself. Um, and I see that in others. I see so many people these days and so many students that I teach that um, struggle with self-acceptance. And what I love, love, loved about what Kyle Thomas created and what I learned through Frankie is that, um, and again, not to give too much away, but so little changes externally for Frankie. So little in her world changes, right? And I think so much, Richard, in our world, we think if I just get this, if I just land that big reoccurring role, if I just get that car, if I just get that house, uh, everything will be fine. And what I'm so curious about and learning is that that's actually not the case at all. Everything and all of the answers are within ourselves. And witnessing that experience through you know, the breath of Frankie um, and learning to love yourself and have the change happen internally, that's the big takeaway. And that's what I really hope um, audience members will also see in that character and in that story. I did what I thought I needed. Family. Run away, Frankie. You've been listening to Elena Holly Purvis on The Richard Krause Show. Her new film, Range Roads, is available now on Super Channel and to rent or buy on VOD. Check it out. It is a great family drama. Highly recommended.
Here's Leslie Seiler. She is, as she says, a Canadian comedian posing as a Los Angelino since she moved to LA with her husband, her cat, and an entire collection of really fun hats. She began her comedy career as an improviser and sketch artist working with the Second City for almost 20 years. Her latest project is a stand-up comedy album recorded in front of a live audience in Studio City, California. The album, Check for Snakes, is available for pre-order on Bandcamp and will be released on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and other digital outlets next week. I am Canadian. Yes. Yes. Yes, I am Canadian, which means I am already concerned about your comfort. When it's 90 degrees out, I bring a sweater. And I'm sorry. That's it. I'm just sorry. I'm just sorry. <laughs> I am so Canadian that I don't even understand my own 90 degree reference that I just did. I'm so... I think that's hot. <laughs> I'm so Canadian, I catered that joke to America. Leslie Seiler joined me via Zoom from California. You're living in Los Angeles now, and you chose a really interesting time to move to Los Angeles, and it, and it wasn't uh, on purpose. I don't think that you could have foreseen what was going to happen, but you moved there in 2016, mm -hmm. and this has become now the basis of your new comedy album called a Check for Snakes, and I'm sure there's a story there, there uh, but it's about moving to Los Angeles around the time that Trump is uh, coming into power. COVID is, uh, you know, on the horizon, not mm -hmm. just then, but it, it's it's coming. So tell yeah. me a little bit about the culture shock of, of moving there. Oh, 100%. So we, I remember getting accepted for our green cards literally like November 1st, 2016, thinking we were moving into a very different America, right? I think we were all a little surprised to put it mildly uh, by the outcome of the 2016 election. So yeah, and I'll never forget driving when we actually had to sort of immigrate, you have to cross the border and get your, your papers. So we just drove down to Niagara Falls to get that done. And um, just seeing uh, Trump's uh, picture, just sitting over the, it was sort of, a, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting feeling. I think though, until we got here, we didn't realize um, how bad it was going to be. I, I have to be blunt. I have to be honest. And when you said culture shock, it's true. You could feel and you still can, because I don't think this country's become any less divided over time. Um, and those four years really divided people. So you can feel the tension and you can feel people walking on eggshells when they, you know, if you are perhaps a liberal and you see a MAGA hat, it's right. a real moment. Um, and I was actually waiting tables and yes, I've got lots of jokes about that as well at Margaritaville. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yes, at Universal Studios here in, in Studio City. So that was a very interesting experience because again, it's a tourist attraction, but you're getting tourists from all over the country. So you're getting them from the, you know, the heartland in Texas and the South and you can, and again, you're, you're gonna see mega hats, you're gonna see um, aggressive political t-shirts, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of stuff like that. And it was very interesting to talk to those people and also know that I, I need to avoid talking about certain things or saying certain things. Right because you don't want something to erupt. Yeah. Um, and, and how did it affect what you were doing in your standup? Because it's the last bastion where you're supposed to be able to say whatever you want, but that seems to have changed. There's a, there's a shift. There's a tonal shift where people are getting slapped on stage for telling oh. drink, or telling jokes now yeah. uh, and things have changed. So did, was it a, a slow kind of build for you? Did you notice a slow change? 
Yes, I would say yes, for sure. When I first came down here, I was actually, in, in addition to doing stand-up, doing a sketch show with some other expats, some other Canadians at um, Second City called Canuck as F. I don't know if I'm supposed <laughs> to swear here. But on the poster, we have an asterisk over the letter. Um, so that show was very, that was a really satirical bite at everything we're talking about right now. Um, and we really went for it like Canadians in America and sort of what we we think of all of that but then we also made fun of ourselves because we were like as much as that's the truth we've all decided to live here yeah so we, we can't deny our own sort of hypocrisy i guess in that way so even doing that show was interesting because that's where i started to learn and started to apply that to my stand-up about where the lines are and i do find in general what i've noticed between canadians and americans is americans are much less interested in self-deprecating comedy mm-hmm. or making fun of them or their country Whereas Canadians, we love it, especially the East Coasters. My God, we'll do it, right? You're listening to Leslie Seiler on The Richard Krause Show. Her comedy album, Check for Snakes, is available for pre-order on Bandcamp and will be released on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and other digital outlets next week. You really have to uh, make sure your point of view is strong and that you can support it. And you have to just know where those lines are and sort of know... How can I cushion this? How can I maybe turn it back on myself so they know I'm not just attacking one in one direction that I'm also kind of holding up a mirror to myself. So it's an interesting balance. Um, I haven't seen what I think will continue to be the effects of the slap as we're calling it now. I think we're gonna continue to see I, I haven't witnessed any of that yet, except for, of course, lots of jokes about it and you know people, but uh, but I, I it's not a good precedent to set because you're right. that needs to be a place where um, yeah, we if we can't, you know, once you start silencing the comedians, right, there's a saying and I'll never get it right now. But, but yeah, it's something with the last line of defense is, is the comedy. And once you start silencing them, we all start to fall. So tell me about uh, the comedy album. It's called Check for Snakes. There's got to be a story there. Mm-hmm. There is for sure. Yes. So Check for Snakes. I've had this idea in my head for, uh, I think, forever. Originally, I was going to make it a sketch show. And then when I started doing stand up, one of the first lessons that I learned was the more, which I think is true of, of sketch or imp- and any kind of good comedy, um, is that the more personal it is to you, the better, right? Um, somebody else could maybe talk about snakes and not have the passion and the fear and the terror of them that I truly have, and it just would not be as funny, right? So, um, yeah, so there's definitely, I literally talk about snakes and my fear of them in this album, for sure. But it's sort of also a little bit of a metaphor for me looking at all of the things that happened, sort of, like you say, this album's very much from 2016. Mm-hmm. Now, most of it written during the lockdown, um, me trying out material on open mics on Zoom, just, you know, it, it crazy, just with other comics, yeah. just doing jokes for silence, you know, yeah. and maybe you get some ha in the chat and it's just <laughs> to kind of figure it out. Um, so, but it's very much about, about my take and my passionate take on some of these things. Mm-hmm. So that's why the check for snakes worked for me because I was like as passionate as, as I am about that snakes will kill you and they are sociopaths and they don't love, they wait, <laughs> no. they don't love. Snakes don't love you. Stop getting them as pets. They don't. Anyway. So and they will never love you. No matter how long you have them, they will never develop feelings for you. Exactly. It's hard to believe that when you pull them out of the jungle and put them in a glass cage in your living room that they don't love you. I know it's shocking, but oh my God. Um, (laughs) So as passionate as I am about that, I am about other topics and things that sort of uh, come across on the album. When you're not doing comedy, though, you've got another interesting side gig, right? I have a side hustle here in L.A. because, again, Mm -hmm. as you sort of need 
to do. Um, and I work at a very fancy flower shop. One of my secret skills is I, I do floral design. Oh, wow. wow. This is this is the shop that does like the Oscars and the Golden Globes. Like they're a big wow. deal. So I have found myself at like Paris Hilton's wedding. I decorated Jennifer Lopez's Christmas tree this year. Really? Sorry, her three Christmas trees. Uh-huh. You went I to want- her house or do you do them and deliver them? No, this was her house. I spent the whole day at her house. And then um, her her and Ben came home. And then we all had to go down to the basement while they had dinner because they didn't want the people yeah. working around them. And then they went off to the Lakers game. And then we went back and finished. And I was just like, this is this is what I will probably, my next album will probably be about doing these things. Because oh, it's I would listen to these stories forever. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> It was crazy. Yeah, I was back behind the tent while Paris did her wedding vows. And then we had to do this massive turnaround. And I've never seen 250 people work so fast because like, you know, the the divider comes down because the ceremony and the thing were in the same area. And I just, oh my God, I saw, I saw like 30 of our florists um, who are mostly like, like pretty strong guys, um, just catch a falling floral arch that was like (laughs) nine feet tall and 10 feet wide and just run it down to the other end of the room. It was insane you've been listening to leslie seiler on the richard krauss show her new comedy album check for snakes is available for pre-order on bandcamp and will be released on spotify itunes amazon and other digital outlets next week check it out super funny stuff you can always tell someone from nova scotia because we give directions not based on when you reach your destination but on when you have missed it yeah Okay, so you're going to go up St. Margaret's Bay Road there towards Yeso. When you see the post office, you've gone too far. Turn around. If it is true that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, well, David Cronenberg must be basking in the reflected glow of some pretty serious film fawning. The OG of body horror's influence can be seen in lurid detail in recent movies like the Palm Door winner Titane and Natalie Portman's biological thriller Annihilation, among many others. The director of Eastern Promises, A History of Violence, The Fly, and Videodrome, among many others, returns to theaters after an eight-year break with Crimes of the Future, an all-star story of eroticized human evolution starring Kristen Stewart, Viggo Mortensen, and Leah Seydoux. Sharing a name with the movie the director made in 1970 and based on a script he wrote in the early 2000s, Crimes of the Future takes place at a time when accelerated evolution syndrome has all but eliminated pain in most humans. The world is a much more dangerous place now that pain has all but disappeared. I don't like what's happening with the body. In particular, what's happening with my body. Which is why I keep cutting it up. Let us create a that will guide us into the heart of darkness. David Cronenberg, join me via Zoom. I won't ask you to explain the movie because the meaning of the movie, I think, is up to the viewer. I loved what Andy Warhol used to say to people when they'd say, what does that painting mean? And he would say, well, it means whatever it means to you. So I'm not going to ask you that. But for me, there was an amazing takeaway about the very personal relationship between art and the artist. And with that in mind, I, I wonder what it's like for you to let go of your art in this sense and release the film uh, to uh, the public at Cannes, the critics now and the general public on Friday. Right. 
well, it's a long process. And, and uh, uh, so it, it doesn't feel like a, a sort of on off switch. It sort of feels like the end of a long, long, slow process when you're, you're finally showing it to technicians basically who are who are doing the sound mix and then we're changing the, the the visuals oh that's great thank you i just got a cap a life a life affirming cappuccino here um and um uh but it's it is like salt tensor i mean it is you are cutting yourself open and you're diving into your most intimate darkest interiors and you're bringing that stuff out into the light and you're offering it up to the, your audience and you are you've never been more vulnerable to rejection to misunderstanding uh so uh or even to to appreciation that can that can also be difficult so um so the, the, there it, it there's a real uh analog there you know between between those things and even after all the films that you've made you still go through those kind of emotions every time a new film comes out they're they're somewhat muted mm. because i've done it before yeah uh, but it's it's a comfort zone it allows you to get through the, the, the you know it's it's a very exhausting and difficult process and uh sometimes releasing the movie is actually harder than making the movie in some ways uh, so, for example, the whole can thing, mm -hmm. uh, it's technically a competition amongst artists, which to me is really anathema, basically. I mean, uh, there should, you don't need that. I mean, for example, all of the films that were shown um, in Cannes this year, I, I haven't seen any of them except my own, but they all, they're all obviously very different from each other, and they could all be great in their own way. And why does one have to be better than the other, you know? You're listening to David Cronenberg on The Richard Krauss Show. His film, Crimes of the Future, is playing in theaters right now. But I understand the excitement that's generated. It's good for marketing. It's good for excitement about cinema in general. And so I accept it. But um, as a younger uh, filmmaker, one might get caught up in the competition aspects and, and, and listen to all the critics who are saying, who are anointing one film you know, over another as though they had insight into the jury. Of course, I know from being on the jury that they have no insight whatsoever <laughs> in what's going on, that they pretend they do. Yeah. You can get twisted out of shape if you weren't aware of that. You could be really caught up in it and suddenly think you are a possible Palm Door winner when in fact there's no way you're going to win it, but th that's okay too, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely... I have a sort of Olymp Olympus uh, perspective on this. I, I feel like, uh, do I feel like I'm above it? Yeah, I kind of do actually, because I don't care. I really don't care if I win or don't win the Palme d'Or because the victory is to be in select in, in selection uh, at Cannes. And, 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 and that has to do with the marketing of your film, a uh, relatively low budget independent film could not get better marketing than to be in in the in can competition so that to me is the victory i think the victory is getting the movie made uh you know so that's the, that's the yes i mean that's the existential victory there's no question about that and that certainly was not easy i can tell you well this script has been uh percolating for 20 years you wrote it uh two decades ago 
developed it to an extent, walked away from it. What made you revisit? Because a lot of the ideas that are in this film about body morphing and, and, and uh, how we are adapting to a climate that's changing around us uh, and our bodies are just going to have to evolve, didn't exist in the same way 20 years ago as they do today. Some of the things in this perhaps 20 year old ideas that you had are very prescient for today. So was that what made you go back or, or why, well, it, why it, go back? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, it was really Robert Lantos, you know, we, we had tried to get the movie made years ago. And I think at a certain point I just lost interest and was offered history of violence. And I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind trying that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because I hadn't done something like that before. And uh, so I just kind of let it lapse. And, and uh, I think Robert never lost his enthusiasm for it as I had. Um, it wasn't developed though, it, because it, there was one draft. Mm. First draft, I never wrote a second draft and I didn't change it at all when we shot. It, it wasn't, I didn't change a word. So the only changes that happened were the normal production changes like, okay, we're shooting in Athens, not Toronto. So that means different things will happen. Um, for me, there's always the wonderful possibility of found art, which is to say uh, things that you never expected show up and you should use them. You should not be afraid to embrace them. So for example, the very first shot in the movie is a ship on its side and you know, it kind of a derelict, huge ship. Uh, we, we, I discovered it while looking for a location. And I thought, this is, I said to the locals, what is this ship? They said, oh, it's been there for 20 years, you know. <laughs> so that was Athens' gift to me. Uh, and, and I thought, well, I have to have that. And then later we discovered the, the boat, the ship cemetery, which I shot a bunch of other scenes at with, with Figo and uh, Welkut Bunge. And uh, and that just that was a bunch of ships that had been confiscated because they had been running drugs and there were court cases and so those ships were just decaying also, and I thought this is too good you know because it really suggests uh, the decay of a society that at one point had industry happening and trade happening and now all of that was in decline it didn't exist um, so that that's really but. It was ultimately Robert Lantos saying to me, you know, you should, I had sort of said, I, I, I think I'm going to write another novel and not make movies anymore. I just can't, the aggravation is too much. <laughs> and he said, uh, um, have you read that old script of yours? Um, and I said, no, I'm sure it's completely irrelevant now because it's, you know, it was sci-fi and technology has moved on and blah, blah. And he said, no, no, it's more relevant than ever. <laughs> I thought, okay, that's a very good line. Uh, okay, I'll read it. And I read it and I said, he's right also. And also I thought it was pretty good. You know, I thought it was well-written and funny and, and also sad and a bunch of other things. And so that's really, it still took him three years to get the finance from that moment. And that's how complex it was. It's a really interesting, thought-provoking movie. But one thing that I didn't think it would be is funny. So I had to ask him about that. Was that important for you to balance the the, the bleakness of some of the ideas in this story with some lightness just a, as a counterbalance? Well, that suggests that I'm very sensible 
rational <laughs> craftsman. <laughs> in fact, I just write stuff and obviously uh, for me, I mean, you, without humor, you don't survive. So for me, it's, it's just a no brainer to have humor in my movies. I mean, I often say that all of my movies are comedies. Well, of course I, I don't really mean it literally, but what I really mean is they all have serious humor in it, in them. And part of it is just because even in the most dire circumstances, there is humor and one needs it to survive. So it, it came naturally. I, I wasn't really trying to find a balance. Obviously, you can subvert your movie with humor that comes in the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong kind of humor. Of course, I would naturally hope to avoid that. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever written a script that didn't have some laughs, let's put it that way. And then it was interesting in Cannes because the only move, the only uh, line of dialogue that got a big laugh, a big unrestrained laugh was Vigo saying, I'm not very good at the old sex. Yeah. But uh, talking to people, they said, no, they wanted to laugh. They just weren't sure if they were allowed to, you know, because right. you're wearing your tux and you're wearing your ball gown and <laughs> your high heels. And can, are you supposed to laugh at this movie the, from the returning master of horror? You know, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so um, so I think the laughs should hold. They should be there for everybody, really. You mentioned Viggo Mortensen. It's your fourth film with him. Uh, it's a, a partnership that works uh, so well. This is a very different role, though, than you have cast him in before. Well, he originally wanted to play Cope, the cop. Right. Um, it just because it was sort of a perverse thing that in that in in a, you know he's played undercover cops in other movies including my own uh, Eastern Promises not exactly a cop but a, you know and and uh, History of Violence uh, uh, and so he thought in this movie it would be kind of interesting to play the 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 bad guy up front bad guy you know the representative of the repressive society but I eventually talked him into I talked him into reason and said, <laughs> and, and basically that for him, Saul Tenser would be a much more interesting role and more complex and quite different. You know, this is the, although we had done three movies before, they were all scripts written by somebody else, not me. This is my first original script that he had acted in and, uh, and therefore a character unlike any that he actually ever played. Part of it is just because Vigo is very dashing, you know, he has a charisma, he has a dynamism, he has a macho thing, uh, as well as a sensitivity, and that makes him a natural for the kind of roles that you were talking about. This is, though, very strange. We, we, we talked about it a lot. This, this is how do you act a reactive role that's got to be quite different from the, sort of the, the, the actual protagonist who makes things happen. You're listening to David Cronenberg on The Richard Krauss Show. His film, Crimes of the Future, is playing in theaters right now. In this case, things are happening to him. He's not really, uh, he's not really making things happen. Uh, how do you keep that interesting? How do you keep him in the forefront of the movie? Obviously, to me, he found the way, you know, we, we, I mean, we did it together, but he found the way to play this role. Um, his voice is used differently than he's ever done. Uh, his body posture, he, he, his fragility, his vulnerability, very much in the, in the forefront of playing this role. 
And I don't want to underplay the performance itself, but there is just a charisma that he brings that is just absolutely undeniable. So this character to me uh, was kind of a rock star, reluctantly so, I suppose, uh, but he's kind of a rock star. even though he he fights against it, I think in the film, uh, you, the camera loves him. As as you shoot Viggo Mortensen, it's impossible, I think, to look at other people on the screen while he's on the screen. Well, that's why I cover him up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he does wear a cloak all the way through this he film. Wears a cloak and he wears a mask often. And of course, the, the mask was in the script, even though we hadn't had COVID masks at that point. Now he's kind of modern, you know, he's wearing a mask a lot. Um, and he uses it effectively. The, the moments that he unmasks himself or remasks himself, uh, partly in, 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 the, in the context of the movie, it's because he's worried about um, uh, allergies and reactions to food and so on that he's having very much trouble with eating. I mean, a lot of the movie is about eating, actually, in a strange way. And he has trouble eating and digesting. And that's because his whole metabolism is changing and his organs are changing. Partly he doesn't know it. Um, uh, so there is that that balance. However, you must admit that Lea Seydoux is pretty charismatic as oh. a you know, Absolutely. so that's the thing. yeah. So, but that isn't in terms of balance. Talking about the craftsman and his balance, I had to have other actors who had a lot of charisma on screen and a lot of power uh, for the whole movie to work. So I think that it's we have uh, four or five or more actually extremely charismatic actors in this movie. Final question. Did you rediscover a love of filmmaking while you were making this? You had said earlier, didn't want to make movies anymore, too much trouble. Uh, Did getting back there reignite that for you? Yeah, it did, actually. It did. Um, Even in prep, I thought, well, this feels pretty good. You know, I remember this. This is this is. So this must have been the good part of movie making. I kind of forgot about that. And then once I was on the set, uh, and we're, you know, I, I'm eight years older than I was the last time I directed a movie. Will I have the the stamina? It, it takes a lot out of you directing a movie, even if you're not moving around a lot. Uh, will I have the focus and so on? Will I fall asleep during a shot? <laughs> <laughs> and for the first three days, I was sort of thinking, okay, I'm what I'm doing is playing the role of director here. I'm playing, I'm pretending to be a director and I'm saying action and cut and all that stuff. But I was kind of disconnected from feeling the reality of it. And then after that, it was just like, I'd never stop, I have to say. I'm for one, very happy to have you back making films. And I just came across a term that I'd never heard before, maybe you have, that your fans are called Cronin heads. I have never heard that. I have never heard that either until like Twitter today. You have to pop, you know? I don't know if I like that. <laughs> but listen, I didn't invent body horror either. That's not my phrase. I never I never used that term. And I actually don't think it's quite accurate. But I, of course, it sticks because it's kind of, you know, it's snappy and stuff. But uh, so Cronin heads, no, that's a new one. 
<laughs> All right, David. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know these are long days and you've been doing a lot of talking, but I very much appreciate it. Well, it's fun to talk to you, Richard. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Thanks. Bye now. That was David Cronenberg on The Richard Krause Show. Check out his thought-provoking new movie, Crimes of the Future, in theaters now. Big thanks to David. Also, a big thanks to Leslie Seiler, her comedy album, Check for Snakes is available on Bandcamp and will be released on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, and other digital outlets next week. Thanks to Alana Holly Purvis for sharing stories about her film Range Roads. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>